Welcome to the Set of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Shore Scene Lesnetsky and Guy. And each week, I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's Florida DCA and Florida Supreme Court decisions, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So whether you're on your way to court, taking a jog, or otherwise have some time to spare, join me each week to get your dose of the latest criminal case opinions. All right, welcome to the Set of the Crime podcast. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about the Florida case law update for the week of August 15th, 2022 through August uh, 20th, uh, 2022. And on the docket today, we have nine cases. We have three that are out of the first DCA, four out of the second DCA, one out of the fourth, and one out of the fifth. No Florida Supreme Court cases and no third DCA cases this week. Our first case that we're going to talk about is a juvenile case that comes out of the first DCA, J.H.V. State, and it was released on August 17, 2022. J.H. is a minor who is in jail on one offense and was brought over to the detective's office to be questioned on a separate uncharged burglary. J.H. was read his Miranda warnings, questioned by the detective, and confessed to committing a burglary and an armed burglary. He moved to suppress his confession, alleging that his waiver of rights was the result of threats, promises, and inducements and was obtained without parental notification. There is no bright-line rule that renders a confession by a juvenile involuntary. The first DCA listed some pertinent factors in a totality-of-the-circumstances analysis, which includes the manner in which the Miranda rights were administered, like cajoling or trickery, the age, experience, background, and intelligence of the defendant, whether the defendant's guardian was contacted, and the juvenile given an opportunity to consult a parent, guardian, or counsel before questioning, whether the interview was conducted in a police station, and whether the interrogators secured a written waiver. Here, the first DCA noted that J.H. could read and write, was calm, indicated he understood his rights, was familiar with the criminal justice system, had been incarcerated for a serious felony, read his Miranda rights, never indicated he was confused, was coherent and aware, and all of this was despite a lower level IQ and education. The first DCA also noted that the absence of a juvenile defendant's parent during questioning does not automatically render a waiver involuntary. There is no constitutional requirement that interviewing officers notify a juvenile's parents or guardians prior to questioning, nor is there an obligation to extend an opportunity to consult with them or counsel when the juvenile does not request such an opportunity. Here, the record didn't indicate that the absence of J.H.'s mother during the interview affected the voluntariness of his statements, as there was no testimony what the mother would have done if she were notified, and J.H. never asked for his mother during the interview. Based on the totality of the circumstances, the first DCA held that the trial court did not err in denying the motion to suppress. The court did remand the case, however, on a separate issue. The trial court failed to specify the length of probation or whether J.H.'s probation term was indefinite. Therefore, the first DCA remanded for the trial court to state the specific length of probation or to specifically state the term is indefinite. Case affirmed in part and reversed and remanded in part. 
Our second case uh, this week is Mitchum v. State. This is another Florida First DCA case that was released on August 17, 2022. Mr. Mitchum was convicted of armed robbery at trial. On appeal, he argued that the trial court erred by allowing the state to call a witness for the primary purpose of impeaching that witness with prior inconsistent statements. Mr. Mitchum was charged with robbing a McDonald's with Mr. Lewis, a co-defendant, and both Mr. Mitchum and Mr. Lewis worked at that McDonald's. At trial, the state, over Mr. Mitchum's objection, called Mr. Lewis, who who had pled guilty, and asked him about prior statements he made at his sentencing hearing and at his deposition, which was taken a week prior to trial. On the stand, Mr. Lewis stated he didn't remember being sentenced, denied that he and Mr. Mitchum robbed at McDonald's, then claimed he didn't understand the questions at the sentencing hearing, claimed he didn't recall giving a deposition a week prior, and stated he didn't recall saying that Mr. Mitchum was the mastermind behind the robbery. Under Section 90.608, Subsection 1, any party, including the party calling the witness, may attack the witness's credibility by introducing prior statements made by the witness that are inconsistent with the witness's present testimony. However, it is improper to call a witness merely as a device to place the impeaching testimony before the jury. But the testimony may be admissible as substantive evidence. Under certain conditions, a statement from a prior judicial proceeding is not hearsay and is admissible as substantive evidence. Under 90.801, subsection 2a, a statement is not hearsay if the declarant testifies at the trial or hearing and is subject to cross-examination concerning the statement, and the statement is inconsistent with the declarant's testimony, and was given under oath subject to the penalty of perjury at a trial or other proceeding or in a deposition. Mr. Lewis's prior statements at his sentencing hearing and deposition were statements made under oath subject to perjury. They were subject to cross-examination at the proceeding where the state offered Mr. Lewis's prior sworn statements as evidence, and the trial testimony was inconsistent with his prior sworn statements. And although a witness's trial testimony that he does not remember events is not necessarily contradictory of his previous statements describing those events, such testimony is contradictory when there is evidence suggesting that the witness's claim memory loss is insincere. Here, the trial court found Mr. Lewis's memory loss was contrived as his deposition was only a week before the trial and he claimed he had no memory of it. The first DCA also held that even if the testimony should have been excluded, it was harmless error based on the plethora of evidence in the case. Case affirmed. Our third case today is White v. State. This is another Florida first DCA case that was released on August 17, 2022. This is an interesting case where what I think is a very minor community control violation led to a very severe punishment. Mr. White, who was a police officer, was convicted of selling drugs out of his patrol car, was serving the community control portion of his sentence. He was 15 months into his 24-month term of community control. A provision of his community control was that he must get prior approval to leave his residence, and he could only leave for specific authorized activities like going to work or to the doctor. 
On Thanksgiving, Mr. White went next door to his parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. The probation officer called Mr. White, who then ran, ran back to his own house. Mr. White had obtained employment and had no other violations of his community control. This was the only violation. Unpersuaded, the probation officer violated him, and the trial court sentenced him to two years in prison for the violation. Mr. White appealed, arguing that he only acted negligently and not intentionally, as shown by him running back to the house. The first DCA was unmoved and noted that the trial courts have broad discretion and upheld the sentence. Case affirmed. Brutal. Our fourth case today is Griffin v. State. It's a second DCA case uh, that was released on August 19, 2022. In Griffin, the trial court summarily denied Mr. Griffin's 3.850 ineffective assistance of counsel motion based in part on his claim that his trial counsel failed to discuss potential defenses or trial strategies with him. At a hearing on the 3850 motion, the trial court relied on a prior Nelson hearing where Mr. Griffin's trial made uh, trial counsel made statements that refuted Mr. Griffin's claim on the 3850. Mr. Griffin's trial counsel was not sworn in at the time. The trial court, in summarily denying the 3850 motion, relied on the attorney's statements at the Nelson hearing and found that they refuted Mr. Griffin's claims. Mr. Griffin appealed, and the second DCA looked at the issue whether unsworn statements made by his prior defense attorney could serve as the basis to summarily deny the motion. Summary denial of post-conviction claims are reviewed de novo. The appellate court must accept the appellant's factual allegations as true to the extent that they are not refuted by the record. Unsworn statements made by counsel cannot be considered evidence absent a stipulation by the parties. Therefore, because there was no evidence in the record that refuted Mr. Griffin's claim, the case was remanded for an evidentiary hearing. Case reversed. Our fifth case today is Riggins v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released August 19th of 2022. Riggins is a stand-your-ground case where Mr. Riggins was charged with simple battery, and he filed a motion to dismiss alleging self-defense. The trial court denied the motion because it was unsworn. The second DCA analyzed the procedure for filing a stand-your-ground motion to dismiss in Jefferson v. State, where it stated an accused must simply allege a facially sufficient prima facie claim of justifiable use of force under Chapter 776 in a motion to dismiss filed under Rule 3.190, subsection B and present argument in support of that motion at a pretrial immunity hearing. The trial court is then to assume all facts as true, and if the alleged facts satisfy the requirements of the applicable self-defense statute raised by the accused, the burden shifts to the state to present clear and convincing evidence to overcome the self-defense claim. Here, the second DCA noted that there was no requirement that the motion be sworn. Therefore, the trial court erred in denying the motion. Petition granted, order quashed. Our sixth case today is Sullivan v. State. 
another second DCA case that was released August 19th of 2022. Sullivan involves the appellate court's jurisdiction over collateral attacks. Mr. Sullivan was convicted at trial of aggravated battery and armed carjacking. He was sentenced and his attorney filed a motion to clarify an issue, but did not change the sentence during that subsequent motion hearing. Mr. Sullivan was not present at that hearing. Mr. Sullivan filed a 3.180 subsection A9 motion to correct error, arguing that he was improperly denied his right to be at the hearing in his case, and if he had been at the hearing, he could have argued for a lighter sentence. On appeal, the second DCA noted that 3.180 subsection A9 is a rule that merely provides that a defendant's presence is required at the pronouncement of judgment and the imposition of sentence. It does not authorize relief by post-conviction motion. So the second DCA held that the trial court should have stricken Mr. Sullivan's motion as unauthorized. The second did not have jurisdiction to review the post-conviction court's order because it was not a final judgment adjudicating guilt, final order withholding adjudication, order denying relief under 3.800, 3.850, or 3.853, or any other type of appealable order under Appellate Procedure Rule 9.140. Appeal dismissed. Our seventh case today is Urbaniak v. State, a quick case out of the second DCA that was released August 19th. And uh, Urbaniak is a case dealing with an order revoking probation. The second DCA remanded simply to correct a scrivener's errors made in the written order of probation, which misstated the conditions of probation that were violated and incorrectly stated that Mr. Urbaniak admitted to the violations when he was actually found in violation at a revocation hearing. So the case was remanded to correct Scrivener's errors. Our eighth case today is State v. Tillman. This is a Florida 4th DCA case that was released on August 17th of 2022. And Tillman involves the dismissal of charges, uh, specifically misdemeanor charges, based on incompetency under Rule 3.213, subsection A. Rule 3.213, subsection A1 requires misdemeanor charges to be dismissed one year after a determination that a defendant is incompetent to stand trial or proceed, provided that the court finds that the defendant remains incompetent to stand trial or proceed, unless the court in its order specifies its reasons for believing that the defendant is expected to become competent to proceed. In Ms. Tillman's case, the trial court determined that she was incompetent on two misdemeanor cases. The trial court scheduled a status hearing six months out, at which time Ms. Tillman failed to appear. So the trial court issued a capius and scheduled the status hearing uh, two more times, where she also failed to appear. Ms. Tillman's trial counsel filed a 3.213 motion to dismiss, During the hearing on the motion to dismiss, her attorney stated that Ms. Tillman was living with her family in North Carolina and that she was recovering from a stroke, but no evidence was presented that she continued to lack competency. The trial court granted the motion to dismiss over the state's objection, stating that Ms. Tillman had a neurocognitive disability from which she could not be restored to competence. 
On appeal, the fourth DCA noted that absent a stipulation, defense counsel's unsworn statement at the hearing was insufficient as a matter of law. The court noted that if an advocate wishes to establish a fact, he or she must provide sworn testimony through witnesses other than himself or herself or a stipulation to which his or her opponent agrees. The 4th DCA concluded that the trial court erred in dismissing the charges because it was the defendant through her own unexplained failures to appear that thwarted the state's ability to rebut the presumption that she remained incompetent and the trial court's ability to make the required findings that she remained incompetent. The court remanded and directed that if the, if the trial court did dismiss the case after making the proper findings, it should do so without prejudice to the state's ability to refile charges as provided in Rule 3.213, Subsection A. Case reversed. Our ninth case today is Jermaine v. State. This is a Florida 5th DCA case that was released on August 19, 2022. Jermaine is another uh, 3850 issue where Mr. Jermaine was convicted at trial of attempted first-degree murder with a firearm and was sentenced to life. His direct appeal was denied, so he filed a 3850 motion, and the trial court summarily denied one claim and set the rest for hearing. Mr. Jermaine apparently filed an affidavit of truth where he made irrelevant and nonsensical allegations. He was represented at the time, and he filed it pro se. He also requested his counsel withdraw, and the trial court granted the motion, and Mr. Germain then proceeded pro se. On five occasions, the trial court instructed Mr. Germain to proceed on his motion, his 3850 uh, motion, but he continually raised irrelevant matters. The trial court ordered Mr. Germain removed from the courtroom without warning and proceeded to hear evidence from the state. The trial court ultimately denied Mr. Germain's motions, and he appealed to the 50 CA. On appeal, Mr. Germain argued that his due process rights were violated when the trial court removed him without warning. The 50 CA agreed that a warning would have been preferable, but nonetheless, his stubborn refusal to proceed and uh, refusal to proceed and present his case rendered him unable to meet the burden. The 50 CA held that the trial court should have simply denied his motion once he failed to proceed. Case affirmed. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Shorstein, Lesnetsky and Guyon. And this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to the site of the crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the episode description for timestamps for each case in each jurisdiction. Thanks for joining us at the site of the crime.